Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Paul Sylvia, psychologist from UNC Greensboro. Dr. Paul Sylvia, welcome to Lost in Citations. Thanks a lot for having me. It's fun to be here. This is great. It's like talking to you is like finding a Yeti in the wild. It's such a rare, <laughs> a rare thing. <laughs> We're out there. <laughs> uh, reporting live from the cave, uh, Dr. Paul Sylvia. Uh, your website is is a good read. I I, I would say let's start with that. People sure. should check out your website. I guess just Google Paul Sylvia. It looks like it's some sort of Google website. What, yes, what is that? It's it's um way back in the day I made a website in goodness gracious Dreamweaver and you know <laughs> used FTP to to bring it up. And when our when our institution kind of moved to like the Google suite of tools, they said, hey, you could make a quick and easy. Um, Google web page through your institution. And I was like, that sounds like a fantastic way to procrastinate grading and writing. So I will do that right now. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just a, it's just a simple little, simple little Google tools. I probably should update it more than I do, but yeah, it's, it's there. Um, Paul is probably best known for using the word grim in academic contexts. <laughs> so it's another fun fact. Indeed. Uh, I'm actually really thrilled to talk to you because I didn't think this was ever going to happen. And the process of booking you on this show um, has been good for me. Uh, it's made <laughs> me have to do a lot of reflecting. The problem is I've read your book and I've read your advice on your website, but I'm still – I don't know. Did you, did you ever watch The Office? Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, I forget the one character, but he was that guy who would always respond to the emails guy. And I remember he <laughs> was that character, right? He's like, hey, you write me an email, I'll respond. I'm that, I'm that guy. <laughs> and, and I always thought that was kind of a funny bit. And I, I think I was maybe high school or early college when I was watching that. And then now as a 41-year-old guy, I don't know what it is, but I know it's not a good thing to do, especially reading. You know, you have this recommended reading list, right? And one of them is this, I don't know if it's a blog post or a web, web post about um, – you know, not responding to emails and be, be a better academic Ooh. writer. That is know. a, that is a, that is a, let's just say a, a solemn touchstone text in our faculty development writing groups. Let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know what that is. Um, I, I, I still need to, to weave my way out of it. I use the excuse that if I don't respond right away, I'm going to forget about it. That being said, I don't check emails in the morning. I follow the rule. Of the, I, okay, I guess we should back up. The, the book that we're going to be discussing today is How to Write a Lot. Um, the edition that I have, I think, was written in 2007. Mm -hmm. um, you have a second edition, 2018, right? Uh, yes. So, um, so we are going to discuss this book a bit, but I do have a lot of things I want to talk to you because, um, again, I've been prepping for this interview for a while, getting excited, and then hoping it, it, would, it would come to be. So... Uh, I, don't, I don't even know where to start. I mean, you said you like to do the free free flow improv thing. Where, should we start with my OCD or should we talk about you? Let's start with your OCD. Let's just let's just see where that goes. You know, I am a, a psychology professor, so you know we always have a, a lurid interest in such matters. We're so, a nosy bunch. So why why do you think do you think that's an excuse? Uh, if I don't respond right away, I'm going to forget about it. Well, I think it's. It's a good question. In some ways, it's hard to know what's an excuse and what's a what's a really good way to procrastinate and what's legitimate and what's what's us 
kind of responding to serve the needs of others. Like I think mm. people who are people who are teachers, people who are teachers fundamentally are trying to serve the needs of others. And you know, email it's it's kind of like the old cold calling of telephones when you had you had landline phones or perhaps even the old days of people knocking on your door to sell you things like anyone can email you anything and it just sort of tugs at this it tugs at this kind of giving cooperative nature that we have as as teachers that someone has asked for something and i it's it's gracious to to respond and it and it is it is gracious to respond it's just kind of part of the academic culture so feeling obligated to help others and to respond to their needs does not make us monsters jonathan so it's not you know it's not it's not a bad thing i think the the issue that and that that essay by melissa phoebos which really is a burn it all on fire inspiring text to a lot, most of the faculty i know especially <laughs> uh especially women faculty uh, by melissa phoebos she's a a phenomenal uh, literary nonfiction creative nonfiction writer i really admire her her work she has a a book, a, a book of literary memoir called Abandon Me, which is just one of my favorite books. But her idea, she sort of uses email as this hook to talk about how um, you can respond to email quickly. And she uses email as really kind of just a symbol of meeting the needs of others and serving others, or you can, or you can work on your writing. And The point she makes, and I think what really speaks to me the most, and I think it's just a good point for reflection, is that perversely, the better known you become, like as you become more successful as a writer or a teacher or a thinker or a public intellectual or whatever it is you do, the more people will get in touch with you and contact you for things. Mm. And so, and she sort of is sort of saying you should be prepared for this, that early in your career, you, you really can write everyone back and engage with everything, but you will get to a point where you can't. And so it's worth kind of thinking ahead of time is what, what can you do and what can't you do? And it's, you know, what's, what's within your circle and what's a little bit outside of the circle. And so I, I find email endlessly vexing. I don't have the answers, but there are some things that are just in this circle of, you know, my undergraduate students, my advisees, the graduate students, things related to my class and work, I'm, I'm much faster with, but kind of imperfect. Mm-hmm. But a lot of things come in, as, as the publishers used to say, just kind of come in over the transom. And some things we, we triage and get back to later. And some things we, we just can't get back to at all. I think mm-hmm. email can get to a point where just because someone calls you on the phone, you don't have to answer it. Or if someone, someone, sketchy with a clipboard is knocking on your door you don't have to answer it even just to politely say no thanks Mm. and that's it's a shifted mindset but part of it is we all have our own gardens we want to tend and eventually you know the like the little things can add up i guess and we just need to find a limit for ourselves at some point of what's what's the emails we can (laughs) we can deal with and what's the emails that we can't it, it's interesting how different types of people handle this. Uh, I, I actually did a master's degree in psychology, and I, I finished yeah. that last year. Neat. And, and my <laughs> neat. <laughs> By the way, uh, for people that haven't read the book "How to Write a Lot" and read the website, um, yeah, you're hilarious. I mean, laugh, <laughs> laugh out loud, funny. 
Um, there are so many lines. I was actually talking to my mom uh, a couple months ago, I guess, and I was just reading some lines from from this book, <laughs> and she was just laughing out loud. What was the What was the best one? Oh yeah, um, the bland are leading the blind. That's a good line. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good. Anyway, yeah. So the psychology uh, degree was neat, um, but my uh, um, my advisor, she was a savant at setting her email for uh, like I will be gone until this particular day. Right? She was mm-hmm. so good at that, and that and I thought, oh, I could do that. So I, like once a year, I go on vacation and I don't check. I do like uh, oh a cleanse of sorts. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't check anything. And I set, you know, I set that email prompt. And I think that's one, I guess that's one way to handle it. But then I was thinking, you know, she was so good at it. You know, I would email her and it would be like, I will be unavailable until this. And they were all different, right? It would just depend on her schedule. Maybe she was fast at setting that up. I think what you do well is you set this expectation. You know, if you go to your website and you recommend this, this, um, Sorry, what's what's the name of that the author? Oh, Melissa Phoebos, F E B O S. Her work is wonderful. It's worth she's really worth looking up. And you also uh, have this tab on your website, you know, cave mode, where you set the expectation for everyone. You say, "Listen, I don't really respond to emails very very much. I will say no to almost everything." And when you do respond, uh, it's a, it's nice. It's so I think <laughs> if I don't know. I didn't. I thought. I. I. I respect the way you handle it, um, because essentially, I think you set the expectation, and your correspondents are always generally nice. So, <laughs> do you? I mean, is this something that you've gotten better over over time? Do you ever get feedback from people about I, you know changing your email style, or people have sort of accepted you know who, who you are? I think it's actually when I first started with Cave Mode, and I forget where I got that. But when I first started with it, the response was good. And a lot of people said, you know, I should do that because I think, you know, it it relates to writing and how to write a lot. And I think uh, a lot of times people think that I'm some sort of robotic, diligent, uh, you know, someone who would be, you know, would work in municipal planning in another life. But I'm I'm really a very... uh, flaky and impetuous person and this is where this is all coming from and i'm i don't keep a tight handle on things that aren't in front of my face i have two children in the teenage years uh i'm just coming out from a college basketball induced delirium the college basketball season just ended and my kansas jayhawks just won and i feel i'm and i'm just you know (laughs) reaching the the adult-pated years of, of teenage parenting and so I think a lot of it is it, what what looks really systematic is sometimes like an attempt to exert some control over the world by a, a flailing and flaky mind. Um, and a lot of people responded to it. So that that's that's helpful. Like, and, and many people have said, you know, I was I was kind of wasn't going to ask you that then. And I, I didn't. Um, and that's it's helped. I probably need to update it more often, but it's generally, generally updated and accurate. And it's just more, there are just some times where I wish I could keep a, I wish I could keep a tighter hand on the wheel and a steely gaze on the horizon, but uh, life can just be kind of flaky and volatile. And I'm sort of full of the things in the circle, especially with my work and with, uh, 
the students and the, and the graduate students that I'm working with that there's just not a lot I can take on. And a lot of it stems from uh, the book, things I really enjoy doing, like uh, meeting with writing groups and, and talking about writing with, with different groups. But um, I never sort of thought I would end up or I never really wanted to be kind of workshop guy where you, you have book will travel and go and be that workshop guy who travels around and gives workshops that you know, I'm mostly teaching and, and writing, and, you know, parenting and cooking and such things. And so sometimes I'm just don't have a lot of time for these things. And it's a way of, I think also hopefully preventing some disappointment from people. How, how old are your children? Oh gosh, they're 12 and 14 now. And boys or girls? Uh, one of each, a matched, a match set. Um, how old's your daughter? Oh, she's fourteen. Okay, because my daughter is nine, and I'm actually talking to her about this. I'm just assuming when she becomes thirteen, she's just not gonna like me anymore. I said, I'm gonna give you a hug now. I'm gonna give you a hug now because you're not gonna let me hug you when you're thirteen. I love. Oh man, I love this age nine, and I just, yeah. I just, I'm kind of, I'm not terrified, but I'm just kind of. I'm facing it with grim grimness. Is that how you would say it? Um, I will say they're they're all good. They all, you know, they all have their challenges, and they all they all have a lot of rewards. And I think um, I'm blessed to I'm blessed to have good relationships with my kids. It's 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 really a blessing. Well, you mentioned I, I saw a talk. I uh, was it at University of Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you were. I do, I do want to say this, and this is the part I might cut out of the podcast. Um, <laughs> wow, uh, that was a long introduction. I, I just don't, I, I just don't think you could have been happy about that. <laughs> I just don't like. No, I, not that I know you well, but reading your book and reading your website, I thought, wow, he does not like this. This is way it, too long. You're sitting. Maybe I felt super awkward. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and the only way you could try to transition out of it was like, yeah, my daughter makes fun of me. <laughs> Let's bring this. Let's bring expectations back down. To... <laughs> the, the 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 person who probably Anna Abraham. She's she's a phenomenal scholar. She's she's so neat. And I think part of it was that was the first face to face event anyone had had in a very long time. And so I think we were all like really kind of happy and a little bit mind boggled mind boggled to be there. But yeah, it it doesn't take a lot to make me a little bit a little bit bashful in the, in those sorts of situations. Um, but yeah, she was really, she was really swinging for the introduce the speaker fences. Yeah. I mean, I hope no one ever does that for me because it's just the, like, I, I don't know if this is a theme, but yeah, you want to lower people's expectations, right? <laughs> it, it, it was, yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a, it was a fun crowd, but very mixed in ages and backgrounds. And it was, um, it was hard to know what they were expecting until fairly close to the event. Um, but I think as with a lot of things, you just sort of, you march in and say, let's have, let's have fun with it. <laughs> and it, was, it was a fun talk. It's the first face-to-face talk I had given since, since the pandemic struck. And it was, it was awkward and, and really great fun. I saw another talk you did 2012. I think you did a talk in Texas. Oh boy, yeah, yeah. At um, UTEP, yeah. You talked for a long time. How did they get you to do that? That was like how long was that? Was it eight hours or something? Or not it might that have long? Been, it might have been four or five. I have um, so one book I one of my quirkier books is a is a book on public speaking. I used to teach a public speaking classes here to psychology majors, and I got um, 
as part of being a little bit improvisational and extemporaneous, uh, I got really into the world of public speaking and um, avoiding reading off slides and sort of tried to, to really, there's a period where I was really practicing that craft. And some, I think once at the University of Toronto, <laughs> I gave this like seven or eight hour workshop with with a lot of slides, but no notes. The slides had no no text on them. And just <laughs> I just kind of had it in my mind and had worked out the direction. And I think it went okay. But at that at that time of that, that was something that I was working on was to um, speak more extemporaneously. And it's it's something that I still do. And somebody says we mentioned this podcast of of improvising that a lot of my particularly certain kinds of courses that lend itself to it. And I, I tell the students this as part of the way how the class is set up that I'm, I'm I'm working on it. And while the benefit to them might be that I'll never sound canned or stilted or rehearsed, I may occasionally sound sort of unhinged and deranged, and <laughs> things might just stop mid sentence when I say, "Ooh, I'm not going to tell that joke," and just sort of stop and stare stare awkwardly at them. So there's that. You know, there's there's a price to pay. <laughs> I would love to have you as a teacher, man. They're they're lucky. They're lucky to have you. Well, let's. I I I like to hear about people's background. Maybe maybe we can back up. Um, but before we back up, I do kind of want to ask you this question. Do you like if you were to go back and talk to your like childhood you? Mm -hmm. Do you think you would tell yourself to to follow a different path, or would you say no, no, it's all right. This is good. Boy, that's a good question. I. I'm not sure I would like I, I would, I like the, the academic life a lot. And I think I also got into the academic life. I got my PhD in 2001 when I think the academic institutions in the United States were sort of in a healthier place in terms mm. of the job market and availability of jobs. And, um, it's, it's really tougher to get started now. I'm not sure I would necessarily do psychology. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I really like psychology, but I, I'm interested in so many things. My, my other major in college was religious studies. I actually changed majors a lot. Mm. I think, um, I'm sort of a closet humanities type, right? I really, I mean, the humanities, people in the humanities are kind of my people in a way. Mm. And I could see myself actually doing something more like, uh, linguistics or applied linguistics or rhetoric and composition or, or something different. Like I like the academic approach. I really, I really love teaching, but I think what I'm actually studying, there's just a lot I find interesting and it, it could be one of many different things. Well, I don't know how far back you, you want to go. Um, now this, this is a little outside the scope of the guests, uh, we have, which I'd actually like to do more. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, you know, it's a pleasure for me to talk to, you know, people who I respect and, and whose uh, works I've, I've read. And of course, this book is useful for anyone, no matter what field they're in. I mean, a lot of people we talk to are in the field of linguistics or mm -hmm. uh, educational psychology. But um, if you don't mind, like, can you, I'm always interested because I'm, I'm at the stage of an early career researcher. Um, mm -hmm. And my story would be completely different than anybody else's. As far as, you know, moving through university and, and doing the things that I did, I, I never thought I would go back to school. After I, mm -hmm. once I, once, once I turned 22, I was like gone and I was doing, and I was studying music. And then at a certain point when I was, by the way, reading your book, I, uh, reading your website, I was like, wow, I would be a terrible PhD candidate <laughs> for him. This is the person he does not want 
That was good. <laughs> like someone that was perfect. You you essentially summed up who I was. You're like, <laughs> these are the people I do not want to advise. I'm that guy. Anyway, it's more so- that there, there's the, the fit. I think the fit of advisor and student is just so crucial. And you know, you want people to know what they're getting into. Grad school is just such a commitment. Um, but anyway, so can you talk us through, you know, what you were kind of interested in as as a child? And I know you you touched on changing majors a lot. But I guess talk us through where you made that sort of transition to really focus and go to the masters and and then sure. and then become an academic. But I always um, I always love reading a lot. I was always still I'm a huge huge reader, and I uh, I went to college uh, a year early. So for by the United States standards, so I actually I went to college when I was 16. Wow. There was um, my older sister was doing the college tour circuit. And we visited the University of Southern California out in uh, out in Los Angeles, which at the time was mostly known for athletic scandals um, <laughs> and is now known for uh, larger athletic scandals. Um, so but they uh, it's such a neat university. I remember at the time they they had a I believe they, were, they had uncommon emphases in things like psychobiology and psycholinguistics, but they're really known for you know, their film school and, and, and such things. And they had a biomedical engineering program that my sister Mary was interested in. So we did this campus tour and, you know, you've got the, the hovering excited parents and the reluctant kids being dragged around on the tour. And when we were on the tour, someone there said, you know, I think she was probably looking at me and was thinking like, how old's that one? And said, you know, we, we have this program where you can skip your senior year of high school and just go right to college and you can kind of wrap up your last year of high school uh, while in your first year of college. And my parents thought this was a spectacular idea because their their two oldest children could go to college together, which I think was their way of saying that my my more responsible big sister could, mm-hmm. you know, look after her, her uh, sort of uh, flaky and feckless uh, younger brother. And <laughs> I, I did get into that. So we did start college together, um, even though she's almost two years older than me. And where, did you, where, where, where did you grow up in California? Oh, in, in, in central California. Yeah. So it's okay. central California. It's about, uh, you know, the Clovis, it's kind of in the central Valley area. It's about maybe four hours by car from LA. So, um, not so far from home that you can't visit far enough to get into trouble. Mm-hmm. And you know, let's just say, um, yeah, I was I was a little young to be moving away from home into into Los Angeles. This was Los Angeles, nineteen ninety two. This was the semester after the Rodney King riots mm. in L A. Um, wild times in in L A. Then, and I started as a mechanical engineering major. Wow! And that did not did not go well. I tell <laughs> I teach I teach a graduate statistics <laughs> class this semester, and I started. We talk about sort of math and math identities, math anxieties, and I say if if you don't think you're good at math, I I got a D in calculus my first semester in college, and that's as far as I went, mm. and that was kind of the it it for like I I know academic probation, that was a a wacky and volatile semester, and clearly mechanical engineering was not the path, mm. and so yeah I changed majors a lot, I sort of bounced around with with things. One was education. Um, a lot of it were just kind of things in my mind. And now, wait a second. now changing majors, that's a lot of paperwork uh-huh. and stuff. So were you less flaky back then? 
it's not well a lot of it was was mental changing majors like i'm interested in this so i'll ah, take some of the basic classes okay. in it, it wasn't like an official paperwork kind of thing yeah could because you could like you could for example meet with uh like I, I met with an academic advisor in the school of education there and they said well take these classes and if you want to change do this mm, um okay. the paperwork isn't it wasn't too bad um and i had pondered some things and i clearly got college back on track by using like the somewhat obvious strategy success that everyone else had figured out already like mm -hmm. go to class and don't sleep through class and wake up before class and attend that class and you know, things like that were you not and, doing that before oh my first semester was apocalyptic yeah i got a <laughs> uh, a 1.84 not a 1.82 not a 1.86 a 1.84 gpa um but you could blame that, your parents on that no, it was, you know, nobody's fault but mine. Like, I, it was wonderful for me. And I think this is, uh, I learned a lot from it. And I think it, it, it has helped me enormously as a professor because, you know, I work with a lot of students who, who are struggling in classes I teach or just struggling in college in general. And I, I don't know where they're all coming from, but I know where a lot of them are coming from. And I think that it's a theme with writing too. I think that we overthink think the causes of our struggle sometimes and we overthink the paths out of them mm. and sometimes coming up with a long complicated story for why something happened and <laughs> with a long complicated plan for the way out of it is just a way of avoiding change and procrastinating mm. and sometimes just not overthinking it um especially for academic types like just not overthinking it is maybe the, <laughs> the first step and so for me it's don't miss any classes, like attend every class, like not 90% of the classes, like 100% of the classes. Um, and I tell my students this now, my undergrads who are struggling, like it's it's really hard to do bad in a class if you have literally not missed a single class. Mm. There's just a lot has to go wrong with that. Um, yeah, so that that went bad. And the engineering school clearly, <laughs> like you are, you're out of here, mister, go find another major. And yes, I don't know entirely how I ended up in psychology, but I, I did it and I really liked it. I, I liked the early classes I took. And so that was one of my majors. And um, I added another major, religious studies. I was very interested in um, sort of ancient Near Eastern religions and sociology religion. And I, I, I believe I ended up with a minor, but I might actually need to look at a transcript. I didn't get enough credits for the major ultimately. It was my other major. Hmm. And I was really lucky to meet some some great professors there who had really big influence on me in unusual ways and as an undergrad at a at a large massive private research institution and one of the professors he was a kind of a rat runner behaviorist type named dennis mitchell and he would always talk about writing and he would talk about the importance of writing and publishing and he would talk about it in his classes and he was generous at this time and i would meet with them when he saw I might be interested in graduate school, he would, he would always talk about the importance of, of publishing your work. And he used to always say, write the book, write the book. And it's kind of a, a phrase of his. And he would say that, you know, when you write the book on something, it positions you as an expert and positions you as an authority and can sort of summarize a body of work. But also as a way of him sort of saying that, like, you, you can have ideas and you can do research, but if they don't appear in print, they they don't really fully exist. Mm. And I can see later part of this was coming from, he was someone who, who really struggled with writing himself. And I think he, he, 
struggled with getting a lot of his ideas out um, on paper. I think that's one reason why it was on his mind. He talked about it a lot. Um, and he was a good help. He was the one who he actually urged me, like, just go get some books about writing. Go get some books about writing. And I had a work stage job at the library, and I did. Um, another was a professor named Shelley Duvall, who was a social psychologist and an incredibly eccentric and amazing and brilliant and troubled person. Just um, he passed away quite some quite some time ago, and just an eccentric professor of the old way, smoked in his office, even though it was totally forbidden at the time, had wild stories, um, many observed, not suitable for a a, a genteel and family podcast such as this. Uh, (laughs) Just a a character in the biggest sense. And he, um, I think he must have driven the other professors there just mad he was he was this is so still, are we still at um are we still in los angeles yeah so i was an undergraduate and he was he had this way of working on research that if you are a grad student undergrad anyone if you wanted to work with them you could as long as you were just sort of serious about it in terms of reading and talking and and interested and so he agreed to supervise my honors thesis and oh, okay. we would we would meet constantly and he would like work really closely with people. And, um, sort of pave the way for me to go to graduate school in social psychology. And so we, um, you know, we published some of the work that we had that we, that we did. And that he and I wrote a book together. So he, he had this odd, oddly egalitarian model that just like, if people can do things, they could do things. It's not weird. So I was in graduate school. I went to the University of Kansas for graduate school, and he he knew people there. He, he was a well-known social psychologist. And someone invited him to write a book on this kind of line of work he had, and he, I had been helping with some of this. He said, hey, let's write this book together. And he was the kind of person that didn't seem strange to say, I've been a professor. I'm a professor at a private R1 school. I've been this professor 20 years. I'm going to write this book with this, you know, third or fourth year grad student mm. at the University of Kansas. Like, it, to him, this seemed perfectly sensible. And, mm-hmm. or, um, like, yeah, we could write it. We've been writing stuff together. And so when I was, actually, when I was at the University of Kansas in graduate school, he had a sabbatical and he spent his, his sabbatical in, in Lawrence, Kansas, where I think he entertained and scandalized much of the, much of the faculty. <laughs> and he just, we worked on this book. We worked on this book together while he was wow. on sabbatical. He was an amazing person, genuinely an amazing person. Um, there are just, I think, one of the neatest things about the academic life is you just, you so often meet people who are just brilliant in a way that's kind of ineffable. And he was just an incredibly incredibly brilliant person mm. um so yeah so that so these were some early models actually these were some early models for for writing and uh, graduate school was was neat uh, the university of kansas it's excellent psychology department great training in writing very practical um someone who recently passed away uh larry reitzman had written 30 or 40 books, wonderful books. Some of them like the leading textbook in the area, textbook in his area. He was just a 
they were just really generous with their time if you wanted to learn about uh, the craft of writing. Um, so the, the training was there. And I think one thing that that really shaped it, so I was in graduate school and uh, the offices are on the sixth floor and a lot of us would take the stairs up and down to the sixth floor, partly just out of stoic Midwestern stubbornness, but also because the elevators were unbearable. And um, I ran into my advisor, Jack Bram, once in the stairs where a lot of stuff happened there. And he said, hey, do you want to go spend a semester in Germany? <laughs> this was like like my third year of graduate school. And like I had grown up in 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 California, when you grow up in California, there's like no other meaningful part of the world. I, I knew there was a Germany and it was somewhere in this place called Europe and they spoke German there, but that's like the extent of my knowledge. Mm. Um, I also had a couple of Gunter Grass novels and that was like fully it. Um, and I was like, sure. I was like, well, that sounds fun. And he said, yeah, there's, there's, there's funding in it for you to go. There's 6,000 Deutschmarks. And I did not know how much that was but six thousand seemed like a notably large number um so i was like yeah so he had a colleague there at the university of erlangen uh andre abela um very impressive social psychologist where they had money to bring international students and scholars over and um i could i could come for a come for a semester to study there and that was really that was really a turning point in some ways like being totally naive and clueless and just kind of your hopeless, hopeless young American, like, yeah, I'll just go study Germany for a semester. That sounds interesting. Um, and so I, I went there and, uh, knew nobody, you know, I knew the people who worked in the social psychology program. They're just a great, a great group and they're very generous. And they, they gave me a key to the library, to the university library, which I thought wow. was bizarre. But that was not uncommon there that you can just cool. have a key. That was like, whoa, this is Germany. Germany knows how to do it. Um, <laughs> but I Did you abuse that privilege? No, no, oh, I good. didn't. I actually was good. really afraid. I was just sort of like it's like it's almost like it's nice to have a key to the library, but then you just feel crushed by the tremendous and awe inspiring responsibility of it all. And I was like <laughs> <laughs> So um I did it, but I I didn't really know anybody and I didn't know like any German uh, or or just sort of German culture or German life or that they like soccer or any of this sort of thing. And I knew the people who can had invited me there. So I spent a lot of time reading and I was working on writing and I I just sort of put the word out. I was doing a lot of writing. I was like, if anyone wants to um, talk about manuscripts they're writing in English, just get in touch, just stop by. And I also did not, you know, I had very little cultural awareness there and that, you know, Americans say, yeah, we should get together. And when Germans hear we should get together, they break out their calendars and like, okay, when, what date, what time? Mm -hmm. And they're like, okay, we will put the word out that there's this American who likes writing and likes talking with people about their manuscripts. And, and people started showing up. A lot of people started showing up with their manuscripts. And wow. This was a time in the in the mid to late 90s when German scholarship, like a lot of fields in Europe, were undergoing what I think was kind of a traumatic change away from a history of scholarship and people's native language of Germany of German into English. Mm. And I talked with a lot of people there and a lot of the 
some of the senior professors, I talked with one who was near retirement and he said, he talked about how there's some very prestigious German journals, like in psychology, this is, I mean, Germany is, is the home of psychology. And he said, these are prestigious journals and we've been publishing our whole careers in these journals, but now these aren't seen as good enough because they're in German. And these journals are starting to convert to English and they're not going to publish German articles anymore. Um, and that what were prestigious German language journals are now just kind of also ran English language journals. And it was, it was tough. A lot of people were making, a lot of people trying to make this transition into writing in English. It's, it's not like it is now where, where people have been trained for this for so long for kind of professional writing for academic purposes in, in English. Mm. And it, it was painful. And I, one, one thing that struck with me, I'll never forget, I was working with my friend Guido Gondola. Um, we were working on a manuscript, and I was just kind of helping him with just kind of some sentence-level stuff and talking through some stuff. And in his blunt German way, he said, he said, you know, Paul, if we were meeting here 100 years ago, I would be helping you write your journal article in German. Mm. And I was like, yep, <laughs> that's true. It's not fair. It's... Um, so I met with a lot of people. It was all just informal, and most of them, you know, German was the first language, but in German universities at the time, quite a lot, it would, it was um, Turkish, Korean, um, you know, a lot, and they would have something rough in English, and we would sort of talk it through, and I realized that I knew nothing about writing pedagogy or mm. helping people learn to write, and, and it... Um, in hindsight, it really had a big influence on me, I think. And it really helped me see that uh, I've, always been, I've always been so interested in creative writing and literary nonfiction, but that's that's not really all that important here. Like that's we something that's serviceable and something that's solid. And it just it built up a lot of empathy for people writing in English is not their their first language. And it um, struck me in a way that was hard to articulate at the time that writing is as much as I might complain about writing, it's genuinely harder for a lot of people. They're just for, there's just certain, some people are just in really difficult circumstances. And, um, in particular, the, what would inhibit a lot of them in their writing was the belief that they're being judged by all the native English speakers who are reading this as reviewers and editors. Mm. And some of them had, had had bad experience where reviewers will say, reject this. this English is unreadable. And I'm like, reading, it's not unreadable. I am, I am reading it. It's, it seems like it was written by a German. It's way too long, but it's not unreadable. Um, and because yeah, that is, that is their want and their way. But, and that's, it's not fair. But they, some of it was an unrealistic fear of being criticized. But some of it was, was a fear grounded in reality that they had been just dismissed by privileged English writers, you know, working in, you know, traditionally English speaking countries who are editors and reviewers. Well, what's interesting about that is I've said this a few times on the podcast, some of the best writing, at least in the field of educational psychology or linguistics or second language learning that I've read have been written by uh, second language uh, English writers. And, I believe it. And the reason why is because they write so clearly mm -hmm. and I mean, that's one of the things you talk about in your book, um, again, the book, uh, How to Write a Lot, um, a book everyone should should read. 
it's uh, you talk about one of the chapters. You know, use good words. There's a lot of good words in English. Um, we should use these words. Yeah. And sometimes when you read someone who's you know English is their second language, they write clear, easy words, and you know other people. You you talk about this a lot in the book. Uh, and it's funny. I actually saw this. I don't know if it was a a study or that there's a psychologist who I follow, um, Kim Knowles, and she was on the podcast and, uh, maybe it was just a Facebook post and she was linking to another article. I don't know. I can't cite this source, but it was the, 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 the gist of it was there was like evidence that academics who write in like ops, op, ops, uh, I can't, what's the word? Ops, obfuscated, ops, something fashion, um, to confuse people or to, to like really, you know, uh, the opposite of clear, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there was evidence that those people um, are actually uh, not nice people. And the re- the reason <laughs> is, is because they're actually trying to separate themselves from the reader instead of draw them, drawing them close. So the evidence wasn't that they, that, they, that, they, that they don't know what they're talking about and they're hiding it through, you know, obs- op- can you help me out? What's that word? Obs- Obfuscate. Ah, it's a I tough believe, one. I think. <laughs> Um, but they're actually not nice people. <laughs> I could, I could believe it because I think there is at the end of it all, there's a kind of, um, a book, I, a book I really love, I think uh, is William Zinser's on writing. Well, I really love that book. And I think it's the one I, I think the, the people I, I worked with in Germany probably got the most out of too, but I liked his idea that, you know, writing should sound like a person is writing for another person mm. instead of just writing a memo for the ether and that to write well is always to be a little bit more personal and you, you have to care that someone reads it and gets something out of it. And I think, uh, I think I could, I, I really can understand why people where English isn't their first language and they're writing in it. They, you lack a certain pretentiousness and also just sort of like a the kind of the blithe unawareness that, that native speakers have of their language where it just feels so fluent and easy that it it just kind of passes under the mental radar um, a little bit. And yeah, it's still it, it, it continually impresses me. There's so much there's so much good work. Um, there's so much good work in science that's by people who are writing English as their second, third, fourth, fifth language. And I, I do think that the, the culture of it has improved quite a bit. I think that um, I don't think people are quite as peevish, quite as persnickety. I think journals are handling this more naturally of like, we're just looking for a certain low bar in the sciences and there's editing services and things we can do. Let's not obsess over this. And I think that's, I think we're at a much healthier spot with with this, at least in the kind of the sides of the social behavioral sciences that I work in. That we we're not, you know, we're not looking for Shakespeare here. <laughs> we're looking for a short article, and um, that I think is something that's genuinely improved over the last twenty years, fortunately. But um, it's impressive, nevertheless. All right, I want to get into some some topics. Um, yeah, just I just wanted to to ask your opinion on some stuff while I have you here, but maybe just to to, to wrap this up. So essentially, you had decided to become a career academic in Los Angeles when you were doing your honors thesis, or was that sort of solidified when you went to Kansas? I I thought graduate school sounded great. So Dennis Mitchell, this. Um, he and I had a lot of fun chats in his office, and he once like explained to me why 
I should be a professor. And he once said, Paul, you should be a professor because it's not a real job. <laughs> he went on this long discourse on why it kind of wasn't really a real job. And he explained that there's a lot of intellectual freedom. It's not clear who your bosses are. You get a lot of flexibility over over what you're teaching. It's You could choose what to study within a lot of parameters. And there's a lot of... Um, he was a spectacular teacher and won some prestigious teaching awards. And he talked about joys in teaching. And um, that sort of struck with me. It's like, hmm, I can, I can kind of feel this. So, yeah. And so it, and at the University of Kansas, I definitely was kind of on an academic path. And I spent about a year and a half of my five years of grad school in Germany. So a lot of that was there. And, um, yeah, my first job, my first job was at the University of Hamburg in Germany. Hmm. Well, you talk about it, I think, on your website. Um, you recommend people do this. Uh, and then you also make fun of them that when they come back, they become like hopelessly uh, snobbish about coffee and pastries. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. I do. I do. I do um, kick all the graduate students out of the country, at least for for a period. And they don't they don't need a lot of nudging to, to leave North Central North Carolina and go spend some time, you know, in New Zealand or Europe or wherever. That's for sure. What what were you studying in the when you when you did your PhD? So uh, I was in a social psychology area, but really it was in motivation, human motivation, motivation and emotion. Um, sometimes it was called motivation science. And when I got my first job, it was the psychology department at the University of Hamburg, really large university. They they had a educational psychology unit, and they had kind of a learning motivation group there that was. Uh, like a lot of um, like a lot of European universities at the time was sort of starting kind of like an English only, a little English only group where it was doing all of its teaching and reading and research in English. So motivation in a really broad sense, especially intrinsic motivation, interest yeah. and curiosity, this was really my my big thing at the time. Because weren't you studying kind of like the effect on effect? I back then too. I mean, I was looking at your Google Scholar. Oh. Yeah, there was a lot in emotion and at the time, especially in psychology, cognition and emotion, how cognitions affect emotions and vice versa were big and experiences of interest and curiosity and just the desire to learn and feelings of wonder was um, something I was particularly really into. Um, and that's always been a big concern for people in educational psychology and learning motivation too, of intrinsic motivation and, and cultivating interest. And it was... Did you? This is kind of off topic, but this is something that I I was interested in. I think uh, the universe is kind of pushing me away from it. Did you ever? Did you ever think about how the instrument itself can affect people, like like the actual scale that people use? Oh yeah, I mean it. It is true, and I think um, psychological assessment, self report scales is its own vexed and dark art it it's I mean, it's yeah and, and a lot of them are not good or they're just sort of obvious what you're asking or they're asking for people's lay theories or concepts of themselves or it's yeah people in the field of survey research this is the bread and butter of what they study of how people answer questions you ask them and you almost don't want to know too much about it if you do survey research because uh, 
If you ask people a question, they will give you an answer. And it might be something they just made up right then, yet believe really strongly about themselves, even though they just came up with this at the moment. It's, um, it is, it is tricky. It, it absolutely is. Because I was, you know, I was thinking of, you know, the pain intensity scale. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, and I, I was teaching these, these really nervous, uh, Japanese students and they wouldn't speak at all. They'd be like, they're totally silent. They were like, they wouldn't say anything. And I, I had this, I've told this story before in the podcast, but I had this job where it was my job to assess their level. And I had to do this for 20 minutes. You know, so it was very strict. It was a very strict rule in Japan, you know, 20 minutes level test and then 20 minute mock lesson based on the level. And you don't need 20 minutes to recognize if someone's not speaking at all. Right. <laughs> so I would have to sit in a room with some of these people for 20 minutes and I thought, well, I got it. I would say, what's your name? And they would just stare at me and, you know, they're Ooh. shaking and, you know, sweating and stuff. And so then after a certain point, I just thought, okay, well, on a scale of one to 10, how nervous are you right now? And then a lot of times they would just circle 10 and like push the paper back at me frantically. Right. Huh. But oh, then, dear. but then, but then five minutes later, I would ask again and it would had it had lowered. And then my observation was, oh, well, this scale actually served as like some sort of intervention. Mm-hmm. And so I've been trying to like, Anyway, I thought, oh, this is this is really this is really uh, this is really cool, and I've been trying to think about how to to test it and prove it. Um, but then I'm just thinking, oh, I guess this isn't really necessarily novel. I guess people have been thinking about this for a while. Um, I just went on a kind of a tangent here. I guess your students would appreciate this sort of thing. Uh, Indeed. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, there's so many things. That, like again, that kind of links back to the book about one of the challenges of writing is that, you know, especially as an early academic or I don't know. I guess I'm not necessarily insecure um, mm-hmm. because I I don't really care if I get rejected. I get a little bit frustrated if I, I like the time ratio sometimes that that bothers me. Um, I'm not overly concerned about being rejected because I I don't really feel like I'm my identity is not really an academic, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but you talk about one of the challenges of writing is, you know, you're kind of you're kind of putting your stuff out there to the you know, to people that have already been established. Right. So it's not, it's not just your writing, right. It's your ideas or you think you, you don't, you don't even know what you don't know at at some points. So you're Mm -hmm. kind of like putting your foot in the water. Um, I guess trying to build confidence over time, I guess that's what advisors are for. Um, yeah. You'd hope. Yeah, it is. I think part of my, um, my way of thinking about writing is, uh, is, is maybe a little grim since we're using that word or just a, a, I love that little, word by the way a little realistic in that I think it's some things are just are just hard and I think it's helpful to start by saying like it's hard and like the landscape is rough out there and it's not in our head and it's not that we need to you know turn that frown upside down or <laughs> turn this struggle into an opportunity or <laughs> you know be grateful for the challenge. And sometimes you just need to say, you know, sometimes this, this feels hard because I'm, I'm trying to do something that's hard and that is, that is hard for everyone. And it's frustration and doubt are kind of normal responses to that. And sometimes that alone, I think helps people out because people often think that like we see everyone else's publications, but we don't sort of see the process that leads to it. Mm. And so it just seems so natural. We see this final printed project, but we experience our own 
uh, agonizing <laughs> over our writing. So we always feel that we're we're doing our writing is like so slow and frustrating, but we don't we don't see other people write for the most part. And yeah, I think it's the nature of academic writing is it's tricky because academia on the one hand is is very open and inclusive in the sense that it's a big table with a lot of seats and anyone can kind of elbow their way in there. Like if you have, if you have a good idea and you develop it according to kind of the norms and standards of the field, um, you can get a hearing, like you can get, you can kind of horn in on a seat at the table and, Mm. and join the big conversation. The problem is just from that, literally everyone is more senior than you. Like if you're an early career scholar and you're sending something to a journal, like the editor is clearly more senior than you. All the reviewers almost surely are. You're like when, when people say, gosh, they all just know more about this than me. It's like, yeah, yeah, they do actually. Yeah. I mean, they do. (laughs) You you bring a lot to this, but yes, that that's why they are actually editing this journal is because they are like super famous person and she's been doing that for 40 years. So yep. (laughs) She might actually know more about your own topic than than you do. So you had a great line. You had a great line in your, uh, one of your talks where you equated, um, publication to childbirth. That was so (laughs) funny. That is so true because the second it's published, Oh, great. Awesome. Put it up on the resume. Cool. Look that wasn't at that. so bad. <laughs> I mean, you can get some, get, you know, maybe you could hire a professional photographer to take some like gauzy sepia tone pictures of you holding your article or something. <laughs> um, maybe like a gender, gender neutral color kind of baby blanket over it or something. Um, yeah. the, the hardest part for me, and I, I think I mentioned this before in a previous podcast, is I feel like I need a closer. There needs to be some sort of consultant in academia who's who's the who's the closer because when it comes to like sending it out to journals, I am done with the thing. I don't mm-hmm. care where it's published. I don't want to look up which journal I should send this to. Like I don't care. Like I just I just want it out of my face. And maybe again, mm-hmm. maybe it's my OCD thing. I just want it checked off the list. Okay, it's done. It's published. Move on to the next thing. I'm so sick of it. By the time it's ready for publication. And I feel like, oh God, this is the wrong approach. This is when you really need to be focusing in. This is this is like this is the end of the race. Like I just I'm just done with it at that point. Oh, sounds fine. I mean, there's no one way, you know. I think there's there's a lot of ways to do it. Well, like clearly, there are people who have a um, uh, like in in ecology, they talk about you know how some animals like uh, seahorses like so some animals have an enormous number of offspring and they invest nothing in them mm. and you just have a thousand and some are going to do okay and then you have you know elephants and chimpanzees and humans where you don't have a lot of offspring but you invest a lot in them and some people are like that with papers like some people publish relatively few papers or books and they are all impressive like they're all a new stepping stone and whereas others and I'm more on this side, just have a, a kind of a, a somewhat frazzled portfolio of things. And there's, there's many irons and many fires and some things are touchstone works and some are, here's a good idea I want to get out or here's something that seemed like a good idea at the time, but I think someone will get something out of it. And, and I think some people have an approach that's more like freewheeling. And I think that that's fine. I think that it's, you know, I, 
I think some people really feel everything they do has to have a sort of oomph and heft. And you see this a lot in the humanities, I think, mm -hmm. where people don't publish as often, but everything they publish is close to their heart and full of the nuance with a capital N that humanities people love. And I think in the social behavioral sciences and the physical <laughs> sciences, it's... Eh, that was a good line. Know, that's more, you know... Nuance they, the never, capital N. They've, they've, they've never found a discourse they couldn't problematize, I tell you. And I say that with love because yeah, these people, they're my people. They, I get what they're trying to do. They're um, <laughs> but like you know, other places. It's, it's more like a mosaic, right? Like lots of pieces. Some pieces are bigger. Some pieces are little. Um, and that things kind of come together out of a bigger body of work. And I think these days, especially in the article writing fields, it's, it's not as important where things appear. I think that people will find it. Um, I think the world of open access publishing has, has really changed a lot and getting, getting something published somewhere so that people who are inclined to see it will see it. I think it's, it's not a bad strategy for a lot of fields. All right. I don't want to take too much more of your time, but maybe a couple of quick fire questions. Yeah. Um, I actually have a lot of time. Yeah. Oh, good. You don't, oh, I can yeah. keep talking. I, 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 I just, I know you're very protective of your time, so. I just yeah, it's late. It's it's late at night here, and the college basketball season ended last night. So, I'm I'm free for about the next nine months. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I just a couple a couple things. Um, what's your advice for somebody that's turning a thesis or a dissertation into an article? Mm. Let's say there's only I know people try to stretch some some things into multiple articles, but let's just say there's just one particular idea and yeah. it should be turned into one article and you have a, a big thesis. How do you go about cutting out the parts and putting it into like a concise article? Oh, it's tough. And I think, I think, um, as to step back, part of this, like a lot of things is prevention is the cure. And I think, so the first step is to use some choice, what my kids call grown up words in the direction of like the curriculum that produces product, because why are we asking people to write epic bloated pieces of writing that can't be published? Mm, that's what I like was kind of wondering. Yeah. I think that in, in, <laughs> I think in terms of like, if you think of graduate training as like training, like acculturation in the discipline, like we need to, we learn the practices and, and, and quirky affectations and tools and skills that, um, I think the, the life sciences and natural sciences are much better at this. It's like we, we have to write grants and publish short articles. So, so for your dissertation, you can write a big grant or collect a series of articles you've published. And I think training people for what for the field's practices is important. But we can't, we can't go back in time. We can, we can curse about our lot, which is very satisfying. And then you think, I think there's really two things to it. And one is you just steal yourself for the carnage that there's a real, the sunk cost effect is a real effect. And people think, Oh, I worked so hard on that page or this page has a lot of citations to books. And I actually read those books. I can't mm -hmm. bear not talking about that part about that book. Cause that book was so boring and so long. <laughs> I have to cite it somewhere. So one is, I think recognizing that like 
chop it, save it somewhere. It it could be the seeds of something else, mm. um, and likely will be. And, but I think the other thing is to think carefully about where you want to send it. And I think much of the much of the battle of article publishing, especially when you're starting out, is is picking the outlets mm. and using like journals are like little little communities like i kind of think of them very anthropologically like they're little communities they have their own little picadillos and if you're so you can know if your article fits a journal by just looking at it like like things don't appear in the journal randomly like the editors imposed their preferences on those manuscripts so that they look the way they look so in terms of how long are they how short are they you know if people like when people say well, this journal doesn't really publish stuff like this, but I bet they would really like it. It's like they're not looking for something that they're not publishing. Like they're publishing what they want. They're rejecting 80% of what they get, and they're taking the 20% that they want. So so you work with that. Like you send, send it to journals that are publishing work like that. And if you have questions about it, like how long should it be? Um, I think it's a good idea, like, like I've done this, like you, you get some copies of the journal or, you know, electronic copies and just count the paragraphs. Like how long should my introduction be? Mm. Like how many, how many paragraphs long is this introduction? Like, does it use headings? Does it use subheadings? Does it have tables or figures? Um, like a lot of the questions people have when they're first getting started are very mechanical questions like this. Like, is it okay to have footnotes? The editors are telling you if it's okay or not, because either those papers that they're letting through the gate have footnotes or not so that's like the published papers reveal editors preferences in ways that you know the information for authors never does so i think using them as models as sort of template models is is really practical and really reassuring because you don't have to wonder if it's okay to have an appendix you can just see if any of these any of the articles have an appendix you know um it also makes people be much more realistic about their aspirations. Like if they're just not publishing stuff that's that long, don't, don't test your luck. Like people better known than you have sent them something way too long and they have rejected it and it's not in those pages. So, you know, don't fight city hall on this, send them something that looks like something that appears there and you're, you're much more likely to have good luck. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm moving in my PhD now, and luckily the program is more, you know, publication by article. Um, they're okay uh -huh. with that. And I need to shift my thinking more towards, yeah, it's tough. I mean, like I'm an early career researcher, finger quotes, but I'm in my forties. Right. So uh -huh. you, you're navigating these, you know, uh, institutional policies of the educational, you know, thing. And then you realize, well, you need this. I'm also working full time, right? As a, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I know I need these articles for publication. So I think now I need just from talking to you, I need to kind of shift. I'm too focused on innings one through eight and not you know, inning nine. I think I need to kind of move my way back in some ways. I'm thinking, um, anyway, let's, let's move on. I don't want to think too much about myself. <laughs> what's, what's your approach to working on a publication with like four people um, oh boy because i've i've I, while i i've done a project like this and every one of them their insights were extremely important and they really all added and i couldn't have done it without them it was really frustrating at times 
Um, extremely yes. frustrated. And I know you gave one piece of advice, you know, when you're coming up to a deadline, you say, okay, just, I'm, I'm going to submit this in 10 days. You can opt in or you, that's a great piece of advice. I wish I knew, I wish I knew that before I did this. Um, but like, what's your, cause some people, some people just flat out disagree and some people will give you totally opposite advice. And again, coming from an early career researcher perspective, both of these people are more knowledgeable than me and they both disagree. So it's like, what it's, do you do? It's very hard. I think, and this is where the, you know, my humanities peeps are, are, are grateful because much of what they do is, is sole authored. And so they, they have only themselves to, to, to curse at when the writing's not going well. But, you know, when we work in these collaborative fields, especially, you know, interdisciplinary collaborative fields, it's, um, it's what we do. And I think there's, there's the bigger stuff and the smaller stuff. And I think to think of the smaller stuff first, I think setting, setting the groundwork for a good collaboration with just things like version control issues and file control and file naming, the kinds of things that librarians Mm. and archivists talk about. Um, It drives me mad when someone says, Hey, here's a word file via email, (laughs) make some changes, Mm. email it back. And everyone is just, you get this crazy, um, like a cytokine storm of, of emailed manuscripts, all with, with their own wacky track changes in different stages. And I think things like having, you know, cloud storage, you know, like shared a place where all the files are kept that everyone in the team can access and a single manuscript file that people can work on um, and access and see each other's comments rather than many versions and things like that. I think some of that is it's self-helpful where others can see other people's progress. The other side is the trickiest. And I think um, once you figure out what you're going to write, it's it's definitely easiest if one person does all the writing. That's It's not a hard and fast rule because there's a lot of projects where one person has like a, a core expertise, like they're the stats person or the methods person, or they've worked with this this modality and they they could really bust out two good pages on this topic and they'll do that. So sometimes people have really defined part that they're going to kind of plug in perhaps. But otherwise, I think when writing gets distributed across a group, that is a recipe for, for, for disaster and uh, temporary restraining orders. It's just, Oh my word, because everyone's going to write at different rates and someone will say, my parts are short. I'm sure I could write that fast. Hence, I will set it aside for months because I could write it fast at any time. So I won't work on it. And some authors, the project is always going to be more urgent than others. It's usually the early career people who kind of need the publications more. Mm -hmm. So I think if, I think spreading the brainstorming, spreading the idea generation, spreading the outlining, doing all of this kind of work together and um, trying to you know, reach a meeting of the minds on what you want to do. And then one person gets an, a rough and ugly draft together. Because I think when, when, particularly when later career co-authors have, you know, they have issues and they have issues they want to discuss. It's different when there's a full draft there. Like it's it's one thing if someone gives you an outline or a couple pages and then you're like, tisk, tisk, tisk. This is not how I would say it. And like when you have fragments of a paper and outline, it just seems so much more malleable. 
And hence, it just evokes this really meddlesome part of your mind. Mm. Whereas if there's like a draft with a title page and it it looks solid, like it just looks like something that more needs editing rather than a wholesale reworking. There's just there's just a kind of a, an inertia to a full manuscript draft that I think makes someone think twice about, you know, rewriting a whole introduction or something. Mm. Um, I, I've, I've seen your, uh, advice on advising so, or your approach to advising. So I want to ask <laughs> you here, if people are interested sure. in that, they should uh, look at your website, but I did, I did, I'd like to know what's your approach on teaching. Um, because I'm struggling something since I've become kind of an early career academic, I think I've become a way worse teacher. And <laughs> part of it is because I don't know. I don't, I can't really, actually I can't really put my finger on it. Um, I expect people to work harder, which I don't think I expected before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'm much more like, I feel more disrespected at times where I didn't feel that before. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, I, I just, do, yeah, I feel like yeah. I'm, a, I'm just, I'm like, what happened? I used to be a better teacher. I'm just not, So like, how do you, what's your approach to teaching or advice for people that feel like their teaching has kind of gone out the window as they've gone more into researching? Wow. I I do think, I mean, teaching and, and, and writing are, are in a real tension. They are. And I think, so if if someone's at a, at a, at a big time research university, there's, there's in some ways less of a tension because the university has, has picked a side for the most part. Like they've picked the side of if you're a tenured, tenure track professor here, you do research and we have people to do the teaching, either horribly exploited adjuncts or graduate students or a non-tenure track. It's it's bad. It's it's bad and unjust. It's bad. And um, and it's in the places like where I work and everywhere else where it's we have a mission of teaching and a mission of scholarship and we kind of want them both but we don't have a lot of money for either, it seems sometimes. And we just want them both to be realized and they, they compete for our time. And it's, you know, the, the basic problem of motivation, it's not that we don't know how to get one thing done. It's that there's so many things we want to get done. Like, um, doing only one thing would be easy, regardless of what it is. It would be pretty easy to accomplish anything if we just only had that one thing. And so that, I think, is part of the context of teaching for a lot of people as they they move forward in their careers. They have more administration. They have more student mentoring. They're often taking on more intricate and complicated teaching and advising. Um, their research aspirations have grown. They've often reached a different stage in their life where work-life balance and family has like a different inflection and it's, it is, it, 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 so there's the competing for time part and, um, that can, that's difficult with writing. I think part of it too, is I think everyone has this experience, Jonathan, as you get more experience, you start to, I think you become better at teaching, maybe a little less idealistic, but maybe just a little bit more insightful that a lot of the the teaching cliches you hear there's a lot to them and it's things like we we can't invest more into students than they're going to invest in themselves that students need to meet us at least halfway and that um 
I think in the psychology of, of recovering addictions, I think they actually have a lot of good models for this, where they say, we're, if someone is in some sort of addiction and recovery process, like we're, we're here when they're ready, like we're always here when they're ready, but they're not always ready. Hmm. Like we're always here to teach them. They're not always ready for that. And it could be a lot of reasons. Like for me, it was, it was maturity going to college at age 16. Um, uh, in the pandemic, people have truly had a lot going on, uh, just uh, beyond the general malaise of anxiety, just, uh, you know, their own health, their family's health. It's been, it's been rough here. It's been rough here. And they're not always ready. And some students really are ready. And we can't, I think we can't drag things out of students. I think at the graduate level, it's especially true that if people are choosing graduate school because they, they sort of signed up for this and they just didn't know what they're there for. And at a certain level, I think teaching starts to look a lot like, um, a lot more like coaching Mm -hmm. that someone really wants it. And it's not our, at a certain point, it's not our goal to make them really want it like professional athletes and people want to be professional athletes. Like we can't make them want to do that. They, they came to us because they wanted to do that and we can, we can help galvanize their expertise and, and hopefully show them some things and cultivate their, their potential and their skills. But we can't make them want, like I can't make someone want to be an academic psychologist. It's in some ways it's kind of not appropriate. Like if someone wants to, I can, I can show them how to do these things but if someone doesn't want to, I should just respect and honor that. Like that's actually it's always a perfectly sensible um, thing to not want to do this. Really, like, goodness gracious, what? But you know, when when one wonders sometimes. So, and I think that's a big that's a big part of teaching at all levels is that there are some contexts where drawing things out of students is important and cultivating their motivation is important. And sometimes people are a motivated out of anxiety and low self-efficacy and things. But I think when a lot of students are just disengaged, I think in a weird way, sometimes we just need to respect that. Like they're not, they're not ready to hear what we're saying. And sometimes what, what we're saying is not important to them. And they're just, and maybe sometimes that is okay too. Yeah. I think, yeah, I, all right. That makes me feel better. Um, I think I get more, uh, dealing with the disrespect, I guess, is the harder part. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I guess it's the same kind of thing what you're saying. You, you know, they're yeah. All right, I can process that. Um, this is a, this is an open forum, so I, I other I don't want to spend too much time on myself. Um, <laughs> all right, maybe just a couple, just a couple more quick things. Yeah. Um, out of everything you've written, do you do you have a favorite? Oh boy. Um... Yeah, I, I do. I have a couple of favorites. Um, I would say the second edition of How to Write a Lot is might be the coolest thing I wrote. I think it, in terms of just the. Well, I need to pick it up. I have. I haven't read the second edition. It was. It was a little harrowing, Jonathan. Why? Um, well, because the first the first edition was written kind of on a lark, um, for just to kind of get my own ideas out. And it was kind of written uh, really with psychology, graduate students in mind. So it has a lot of that inside humor and it's, it's has a lot of like 
Easter egg shout outs to psychologists. And it really was written for psychology types. Um, but that's not really who read it. It, it really is all people. <laughs> it's like, it's, it, it's the people who write books and, um, in particular people who are really struggling, like people who are, uh, graduate students trying to crack into like a brutal job market in history or someone who's been doing a non-tenure track adjunct work in classical studies for two or three years. And it's just looking to, you know, they're kind of treading water, trying to publish some work so they can be competitive in the tenure track. And, um, but the people who are really buying it were totally different. And, um, eventually I kind of had this idea, oh, maybe I should revise it. And the publisher's like, oh, maybe we should revise it. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll, we'll do a light touch revision, a light touch. He says, we'll <laughs> add a chapter and just kind of, you know, smooth over some of the jokes. <laughs> and, um, and then when I did it, I was like, I think I'm going to end up rewriting this whole thing. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and, uh, cause you know, I didn't have kids back then and I feel like, a, and, but I was, I was the whole time. So it's, it's almost like a plagiarized version of the first, most of it. Like it's the, it's like the same, like some of the chapters are like the same, almost paragraph for paragraph and their, their topic idea, but rewritten <laughs> from scratch it's it's funny it's as if a slightly better writer plagiarized the first book into this book and added a chapter um it's you, it's weird yeah and it was i the whole time was like this is foolish and i might actually be ruining what people liked about the first edition and why did i agree to do this and all of those sorts of things well did you get a lot of feedback on the second edition yeah i think um one thing i've always done with these kinds of books is i would I would print a lot of free photocopies for the graduate students and just say, if you're interested, I'll give you a copy. And if you just honestly tell me what you think. And for this one too, I, for my own doctoral students, I gave them a photocopy and a hundred bucks. And I said, I'm not kidding. And I was like, I know a lot of jokes in here are dumb. <laughs> just, <laughs> you need to be really honest with me. And they gave me that look that all graduate students give their advisors saying, yeah, telling you which of your jokes are dumb is not going to be a problem for me. And, um, and I, yeah, I would just, I got a lot of feedback from folks and the publisher has always been really wonderful with, with getting comments. And it was mostly harrowing and thinking of like, is this, is this better? Um, but it was, I was, I was, I was really happy with, it. and I think mostly I was happy with it that I felt like I could see that I improved a lot as a writer and that, it, the writing was better. And, um, I don't know, I guess maybe it's just a simple thing of doing it twice. I could see, you know, I think I, I might be figuring something out with this writing stuff. Um, well, I'm good. I think people liked it. I think people clicked with the second one and it's, it's, it was made to be more general for people in all areas and to speak to more areas of academia. And I think it, it has more of a focus on, that's more tacit in the first one of, of kind of work life issues. And we try to organize our writing. It's, it's partly about being more productive a writer, but it's really more about finding peace with your writing so that you can have a life and have the other things that are meaningful in your life, that writing doesn't dominate and loom over you and ruin your weekends. And you always feel bad about yourself that you should be writing that productive writing is mostly a matter of, 
wrangling your writing into its cage where it can stay when you're not around and you're not having fun with the kids. Well, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna have to pick up the second one because, yeah, when you read the first edition, I don't think you mentioned kids. There um, were no kids then. Yeah. You talk about, you know, petting your dog in your Still free time and staring, <laughs> like staring at the wall on the weekends, like knitting a, knitting a, knitting a hat for your dog. And <laughs> it sounds strange when I, cause part of it was like when I would, I swore I would not dabble with the text much, but when, I, you know, there's parts of there where I was like, yeah, I set my alarm to wake up at the unholy hour of 8 a.m. And I wake up at 8 a.m. blinking against the sun saying, wow, it's so early. I will get up at right now. How dedicated, how serious. And I mean, once you have kids, you're like, oh, my word. I I, I have not slept at 8 a.m. for a really long time. Like, like it's, you know, it's, it's kind of comical. So it was kind of a little farther along in the lifespan. And I think um, I think the messages of just like encouragement and find a way that works for you. And here's, here's a few things that are likely to work, um, are sharper, are sharper in the book. And I hope it's funnier. If you read it, let me know. I hope it's funnier. I'll check it out. I mean, the thing that helped me the most in the first book, of course, is, you know, writing schedule, um, Mm -hmm. sticking to that. Uh, also the idea of don't check your email or anything before you start writing. Uh, (laughs) Go straight from your pajamas to the computer. I've really taken that as sort of a religious practice. Um, So those are, it's all, it's all good. It's all good stuff. It's uh, again, it's how to write a lot, I guess. I mean, I, I'm going to read the second edition for people that are reading the second edition. I, I still probably would recommend them reading the first edition, right? Only if, only if they're really trying to avoid working on something that they should be writing, and this sounds like a credible, a credible way to do that. Um, let's see. Was there anything? Was there anything else? I'm trying to think. Um, I guess we can say memes. We can save memes for a future podcast. <laughs> That's a big passion of yours. Yes. Doctor Paul Sylvia, thank you for coming on Lost in Citations. It's it has been a pleasure. If you'd like to contact the show. The best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.